0: It's Tuesday, September 20th, 2022, the 608th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'myourmoderator.substack.com. You can do that for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me and the work I do and this show as it expands. And if you don't want to, that's okay. Just don't. And you can keep listening to the podcast, reading the articles a few days after they're released. But if you choose to do that, do me one favor and share the show with your friends or people who you think would appreciate it. Now, I want to start off today talking about Twitter because there was a major court decision on Friday that deals with Twitter's ability to censor the legal speech of its users. And so let's go to a little background information first. This is from Politico, May 31st of this year. Supreme Court blocks Texas law on social media censorship. The Supreme Court has suspended a Texas law banning online platforms from restricting user posts based on their political views, representing a major win for social media companies. In a 5-4 ruling, the court granted an emergency stay request on Tuesday from tech industry groups that petitioned to block the law, which is being appealed in a federal appellate court. The companies have argued the law violates their First Amendment rights to control what content they disseminate on their webpages and platforms. The Texas law, which a federal appeals court allowed to go into effect on May 11th, allows both the state of Texas and individual Texans to sue companies if they censor an individual based on their viewpoints or their geographic location by banning them or blocking, removing, or otherwise discriminating against their posts. No one had yet filed lawsuits under the law. And Tuesday's decision means it will remain blocked as the case moves through the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Chief Justice John Roberts, along with Justices Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett granted the stay, which overturned the Fifth Circuit ruling, lifting an earlier injunction from a Texas district court. The district court has not yet ruled on the underlying merits and constitutionality of the case. Justice Samuel Alito wrote a dissent that was joined by Justices Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch. While Justice Elena Kagan also dissented, she didn't join Alito's dissent, nor did she explain her own reasoning. The law HB 20 could drastically change the way social media companies operate by restricting their freedom to police their platforms and forcing the platforms to justify decisions they make on multitudes of posts a day. We're encouraged that this attack on First Amendment rights has been halted until a court can fully evaluate the repercussions of Texas's ill-conceived statute, said Matthew Shrewers, president of the Computer and Communications Industry Association, which filed the petition. Its members include Facebook, Twitter and Google. So the lawyers for the big tech companies are championing that decision from May. As a victory for the First Amendment, they are allowed to have the freedom to censor whatever content on their platform they want to censor. They're arguing that it upholds the First Amendment to allow them to do this. And of course, we know that they are doing this in conjunction with not only the federal government, but with state governments and also governments of countries around the world. And, of course, the global governance bodies. But because Twitter is a private platform, in quotes, they're allowed to do this. They believe it's their First Amendment right to censor the speech of political dissidents in the United States and elsewhere. And they argue this while it's been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're doing it hand in hand with the government. The government is not allowed to delegate the violation of citizens constitutional rights to private companies. That's not something the government can do. That's an explanation that people like Sam Harris think is locked down, totally airtight. Twitter's a private company. Therefore, they can censor whatever they want. Hey, Sam, the government is. Is asking Twitter to censor this stuff. Does that change your calculation? And he thinks, no, they're a private company. They can do whatever they want. And he actually thinks that he's expressing a conservative viewpoint there. That's Sam Harris believing that he has found the reasonable centrist position. On one hand, he wants censorship. On the other hand, He doesn't want to look like a person who wants censorship. So he wants censorship, but doesn't want to look like a censor himself because everybody knows that being pro censorship is bad. So, He won't take the pro-censorship position. He'll take the position that Twitter is a private company so they can do whatever they want. And once you say private company, then you're making the conservative argument. So you're a centrist. You can want censorship as long as someone else does it. Because then it's not an argument about censorship. Then it's an argument about the rights of private companies. So it's very conservative, don't you see? This is the same argument that people at the National Review make because they, too, want censorship. Their prestige goes bye-bye. It goes up in smoke. Everybody realizes that they are actually aiding the cause of communists if they're no longer able to successfully shift the discussion about censorship to a discussion about the rights of private companies. But that entire conversation is moot. Because they're not private companies, they weren't started as private companies, and it's provable and proven that they are not acting as private companies in their censorship. They are acting as partners of the government. They are acting as agents of the state. They do not have the right as a quote unquote private company to censor Americans in violation of their constitutional rights on behalf of the state. So Texas tried to pass a law that would allow people and organizations in Texas to sue the tech companies if they were censored. That law was knocked down by the Supreme Court in May, and it was sent back to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. On Friday, we got the decision from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the filing, the decision is 113 pages long, but let's get the summary here at the beginning. A Texas statute named House Bill 20 generally prohibits large social media platforms from censoring speech based on the viewpoint of its speaker. The platforms urge us to hold that the statute is facially unconstitutional and hence cannot be applied to anyone at any time under any circumstances because you're not allowed to write laws that violate the Constitution. The Constitution is the law of the land, or at least it used to be. In urging such sweeping relief, the platforms offer a rather odd inversion of the First Amendment. That amendment, of course, protects every person's right to the freedom of speech. But the platforms argue that buried somewhere in the person's enumerated right to free speech lies a corporation's unenumerated right to muzzle speech. So what is he saying there? That's the important part. An enumerated right is specifically listed. It is listed individually by itself as the first amendment is the right to freedom of speech. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press Or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So, the freedom of speech is an enumerated right. There is no enumerated right for corporations to censor speech. And that's what the judge is pointing out here. They are claiming an unenumerated right, a right that is somehow automatically derived from the First Amendment. It's an outgrowth of the First Amendment that corporations are allowed to censor speech. That's their argument, that the right to free speech applies until a corporation has to host that speech, in which case the corporation can deny that enumerated right from the people on the platform. The implications of the platform's argument are staggering. On the platform's view, email providers, mobile phone companies, and banks could cancel the accounts of anyone who sends an email, makes a phone call, or spends money in support of a disfavored political party, candidate, or business. What's worse, the platforms argue that a business can acquire a dominant market position by holding itself out as open to everyone as Twitter did in championing itself as, quote, the free speech wing of the free speech party. Then, having cemented itself as the monopolist of the modern public square, Twitter unapologetically argues that it could turn around and ban all pro-LGBT speech for no other reason than its employees want to pick on members of that community. And that is what They are arguing for themselves. That right extends indefinitely. And the judge here is citing oral argument from the case. This is what Twitter's lawyers have to assert to make their argument. They can ban any point of view they want because as a private platform, they can't be forced to host the opinions and ideas of anyone whose ideas they disagree with. They're claiming the right to host a platform that only caters to a certain viewpoint. But that's all kind of undercover. That's certainly not how they market themselves. If Twitter wanted to market themselves as the home of restricted speech among fake intellectuals, blue and on media figures, wannabe celebrities and rhinos, they could do that. But they don't do that. They still pretend that Twitter cares about free speech. They just care about the health of the public conversation as they define it. So they're claiming the right to be able to censor any viewpoint they want. And that's what they have to claim because otherwise they would have to argue that some exception must be made that allows them to censor specific opinions. They have to rely on the argument that they can censor whatever they want because it's their platform and they don't have to host speech they don't like. And the good thing here is that this finally gets down to the bottom of the issue. That's the issue. Are they allowed to censor whatever they want for whatever reason they want? Do they have that power? They're arguing that if they don't, then their First Amendment right will be violated by being forced to platform speech they don't agree with. And that should tell you immediately a whole lot about what information actually exists on Twitter. It's information they're okay with. And to conclude this section, today we reject the idea that corporations have a freewheeling First Amendment right to censor what people say. Because the district court held otherwise, we reverse its injunction and remand for further proceedings. And so Politico has picked this up on Friday afternoon. They wrote this article. Fifth Circuit upholds Texas law forbidding social media censorship again. A Texas law that bans social media companies from censoring users' viewpoints is constitutionally allowed. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled on Friday in a blow to Facebook, Twitter and Google. The ruling is a win for Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton in their efforts to combat what they call censorship of conservative viewpoints by social media companies. Despite the ruling, the Texas law does not immediately take effect. It will do so once the appeals court issues written instructions to the district court that had decided the case. And most of the rest of the article is just restating things we've already gone over. But in a tweet, Paxton said, I just secured a massive victory for the Constitution and free speech in federal court. Big Tech cannot censor the political voices of any Texan. Net Choice Vice President and General Counsel Carl Sabo said in a statement that his organization plans to appeal. We remain convinced that when the U.S. Supreme Court hears one of our cases, it will uphold the First Amendment rights of websites, platforms and apps. And our friend Matt Shrewers, who we introduced in the last Politico article, said we strongly disagree with the court's decision, forcing private companies to give equal treatment to all viewpoints on their platforms places foreign propaganda and extremism on equal footing with decent Internet users and places Americans at risk. So absolutely No argument in principle whatsoever in that response. That is just whining. That is an emotional reaction. They are worried that this decision is going to make things bad for them. They get to decide what constitutes a decent Internet user. They get to decide what constitutes extremism or foreign propaganda. And of course, foreign propaganda doesn't consist of Things the World Economic Forum says or advisements from the WHO that have no scientific backing when it comes to COVID. It's not foreign propaganda to deny the existence of Ukrainian Nazis and say that Russia launched a war of invasion. That's not foreign propaganda. All of that is acceptable because that's what decent Internet users think. Now, all of this is important because censorship and how censorship is being carried out and when censorship might end are some of the most important issues in our society. This is not just about which social media platforms which people can use and what things we get to say on them. There's a reason the First Amendment was put first. You can't have a free and open society without free speech and free thought and the freedom to assemble, the freedom to practice your religion. Because all of those things are how the freedom of thought expresses itself in the world. And if you take away all of the ability to express free thought, then what you're really attacking is the freedom of thought. And there is no doubt that that's the ultimate goal. It's not about free speech on Twitter, or free speech on Facebook, or Instagram, or YouTube. It's about setting the conditions where the society in general is not allowed to express dissent, and if that goes on long enough, you will see, and can see this represented in our society right now, people will stop thinking freely. They will train themselves to avoid all of the thoughts they're not allowed to have. And they will attack those thoughts and eventually the people who think them if it goes on long enough, they will begin to construct their own thoughts as a product of the set of thoughts they're allowed to think and express. The end of free speech is eventually the end of free thought across societies. Yes, there will be dissident individuals. There always will be. And that's fine. But what censorship does to a society is of the utmost importance and we can see that in real life in the last two and a half years. Just think about COVID on. We don't even have to go back before that, although you certainly could. Imagine how many lives would have been saved, how many businesses would have been saved, how many people's mental health could have been saved if we hadn't locked down, if we hadn't enforced masks, if we hadn't kept hearing about How we need two weeks to slow the spread and then another two weeks and then another two weeks. Imagine where we'd be if people could have actually discussed the election fraud, the stolen election of 2020. Imagine where we'd be if people could have actually discussed the very violent insurrection or the total lack of safety and effectiveness from the vaccine. How many people's lives have been destroyed? How many people have been impoverished? How many people have been imprisoned and then look at the state of the country? All of this, all of it is a result of censorship because censorship takes away the ability of the people to reach proper, informed and moral conclusions about how to proceed as members of a civilization. And every ruling power in the history of the world has known this. Censorship isn't a new phenomenon. We saw censorship throughout the 20th century. Our founding fathers knew that these sorts of moments come around in regimes. And that's why they codified the freedom of speech as our first amendment. And I bring all of this up because this morning I woke up to an email that my Twitter account had been unsuspended. My Twitter account was suspended on October 26th, 2020. So it's been almost 23 months, almost two years that my Twitter account has been suspended. And I got suspended because I asked some blue check fat country singer if he was retarded after the second Trump Biden debate because. This fat country singer was making a joke about how dumb Donald Trump was for saying that humans and drugs were smuggled over our southern border by coyotes. This child brained Twitter blue check thought that Trump was asserting that packs of wild dogs were responsible for human trafficking and drug trafficking. Yes. It's Donald Trump. He's the stupid one. Except that coyotes are what those smugglers are referred to. They're people. The people in the cartel doing the smuggling are called coyotes. Now, if you can't ask someone who says that and thinks that and thinks they're being really smart when they say it, if they're retarded Then we just don't have free speech, my friends. What do you want me to tell you? Did I ask an offensive question? Well, only if you accept the idea that a bunch of child-brained communists get to decide what words are okay and what words aren't. I got banned for hate speech. Is asking someone who says one of the dumbest things imaginable if he's retarded, a grown adult man with a blue check on his Twitter. Is that hate speech? And if it is, on what basis? Whose disability are they pretending I'm mocking? The only person I'm mocking is the fat country singer with the blue check mark next to his name. And I am using the word retarded in its literal capacity. I'm not the one conflating the word retarded with a mental disability. That's them. If they're saying a fat country singer with a blue check mark is somehow the same as someone born with a significant mental disorder that makes it impossible for them to think at a normal human capacity, then fine. I can accept that framing for what I said. But then you have to tell me how I'm only mocking society's most vulnerable. The definition, according to Merriam-Webster, of retarded is affected by intellectual disability. And the other definition is very stupid or foolish. Now, the fat country singer is definitely very stupid and foolish. So by definition, he's retarded, but I didn't even call him retarded. I just asked if he was, I wanted to know before interacting with him, whether or not he had an intellectual disability. I have to say that is about as sensitive a question as I could have ever asked him. I would never call someone with a mental handicap retarded. I would say they've been victimized by big pharma. And I told Twitter all of this when I first appealed my suspension back in 2020. I was like, I'm not the one insinuating that there is some relationship between this blue check fat country singer and someone with a legitimate mental handicap due to a birth defect or an accident or something. That's you guys. You guys are making that conflation and you're using it to say that I'm conducting hate speech but my appeal failed. And I have appealed that suspension a few times over the last two years as the situation with Twitter has progressed and our conversations about censorship have evolved. I tried to appeal when it was first announced that Elon Musk was buying the company and probably at a few other points while Twitter has been going through all of The litigation they've been swamped with for the past couple years, and it never worked. I continue to check in, not because I'm desperate to go back on Twitter, but because I want to know where the state of censorship currently is. And so when the situation came down on Friday, I immediately wrote and appealed. I said, hey, I've been suspended for two years illegally, according to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in Texas. You don't have the right to censor me. You are violating my First Amendment rights. And a few days later, I am now back on Twitter. I don't know yet if I'm going to use Twitter at all. I updated the profile picture in the banner just to see if anybody notices. I like running my own little experiments from time to time and just seeing what happens. But I don't know what I'm going to do. Here are the options. I could ignore it completely and just stay off Twitter. I can deactivate my account completely so that I am gone from the platform. And I'm considering those options. I don't really want to re enter the cesspool and have them tracking me all the time. That doesn't sound like a good time. Although, as I was talking about yesterday, they're probably tracking me in a variety of ways, anyhow being continually banned and censored by multiple platforms will train you into thinking along those lines pretty generally. Well, they banned my Twitter. They banned my Instagram. They banned me from Spotify. They banned me from Spotify's podcast platform. I've even gotten censored by Yelp. So I assume they've got me in some way or another. I deleted all the Google apps from my phone, all the Facebook apps, don't have uh, WhatsApp, don't have Instagram, don't have Gmail, don't have Google Maps, don't have any of it. But I guess I do have YouTube, so maybe they've got me there. I have an Apple phone, so I'm sure Apple has all of my information. And there may be an app here or there that's tracking me in some way I'm not aware of. All of that is entirely possible. And so if that's all true, then... Being back on Twitter is concerning, but in a way and at a level that I'm probably already dealing with. So do I go back on and just carpet bomb away and try to make some little commie heads explode? Yeah, I kind of think that might be the answer. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm trying to approach this situation with patience. But that might be it. I have a few blue check followers like a writer from the Atlantic, that sort of thing. I never really grew that account. It was an account I started right before I started the podcast and I was primarily active on Instagram and was heavily shadow banned on Twitter. No one would see my tweets unless I was in someone's replies and that person had already interacted with me. And then the other option, of course is if I choose to go on there and try to be tactical about it, try to work within the rules and have an influence and pull people away from Twitter, onto Truth Social, onto Telegram. So it's a lot to think about. And just to be clear, nothing about whether I go back onto Twitter or not is going to change my presence on Truth Social and Telegram. They're both better apps, they're better environments, and there are smarter people there. I'm not going to go spend my time getting information from a censorship bubble, but I think it might be very effective to go over there and try to alert people to how ignorant that censorship bubble has made them. When I logged into the account this morning, I saw that the Atlantic writer, Connor Friedersdorf had retweeted Justin Amash and Justin Amash used to be one of those very controversial Tea Party conservatives. He was a true libertarian who would always speak the truth from a very principled position. This is what the Atlantic writer retweeted from Justin Amash. National conservatism is repackaged authoritarianism and has little to do with constitutional or fiscal conservatism. This ideology fundamentally rejects individualism and property rights and thus has more in common with socialism than with libertarianism or classical liberalism. Who in the world actually thinks that smart? And apparently the answer is very smart, very serious intellectuals on Twitter. Repackaged authoritarianism? The people who are fighting against censorship, the encroachment of global governance, the enforcement of vaccine mandates, the coercion to join a dangerous medical experiment, those people are the ones repackaging authoritarianism. This is really what you get on Twitter from the very smartest people. This is the conservative guy at The Atlantic retweeting Justin Amash, the Libertarian Tea Party hero, as presented by the media five years ago. That could just as easily have been a tweet from Bill Kristol that was retweeted by the Lincoln Project, and you wouldn't know the difference. In fact, that's a tweet that could have been written by Joy Reid, and retweeted by Salon Magazine, and you wouldn't have known the difference. That is the state of conservatism on Twitter, which is why we have the problem of all these rhinos and normie Republicans, even weak MAGA. And by the way, when I say weak MAGA, I am saying people who voted for Trump and would vote for Trump again They just won't really talk about it and they won't defend Trump. They won't talk about election fraud. They won't talk about any of that stuff because they don't want anybody else to know that they're a Trump supporter. They're the people out there hoping that somehow we can just swap in Ron DeSantis so that we can support our candidate without getting in trouble. That's weak MAGA. And I know that we need them on our side. But they're not on our side if they're not speaking up and defending what they believe. Okay, they're not on any side at that point. If anything, they're helping the other side maintain the illusion of this vast and dominant majority where only extremists and people on the fringes are actually supporting Donald Trump and defending Donald Trump. That's a problem for us that we should be able to handle. That's something that we need to talk about. It's not something that we need to silence. Ooh, you're being divisive. No, I'm not. We wouldn't be in this situation if everyone was actually standing up for what they believed in and standing up for their principles and standing up for the people who are actually putting the country first and not just trying to profit off all of this in our managed decline into being subsumed by the global government, it's too late to represent weak MAGA. The country is at stake. It's time to stand up and support your principles and support what you believe in and do it publicly. Do it around liberals. They're not scary. These are the weakest and dumbest people in the history of man. They literally don't know anything true. And you can go on Twitter and figure that out for yourself in five minutes This is the brand of conservative on there. All of this is the product of that censored information bubble. The real information doesn't get in there. So all of these very smart people are trying to figure out their very smart conclusions within that little bubble. That's how you end up two years behind on lockdowns and masks. And the fact that the very deadly pandemic simply wasn't very deadly. That's how you end up a year and a half behind on whether or not the vaccines are very safe and effective or whether or not you need one for a very deadly pandemic that isn't very deadly. They're all figuring out a year and a half later that the very violent insurrection wasn't an insurrection and wasn't very violent. What kind of difference would it have made if they figured that out a year and a half ago? They would have figured it out. If free speech had existed, if Twitter wasn't censored, if we could have put up all the information we know and put that right next to the information they know, which way would they go? Smart people will choose the right outcome if they're given the right information and the incentives are removed. The threat of punishment is removed. People can figure out what's true in a free and open information space. And how much of a difference would that make? It's been two years and virtually none of them understand that the 2020 election was stolen and that these aren't baseless claims with no evidence. It's a multitude of highly specific claims, all supported with overwhelming evidence. And none of them know it. Now, I've been trying to see if my unsuspension is some sort of isolated incident or whether it's possible for everyone who got banned to get back on there? And so I was encouraging people, appeal your suspension, mention the decision in Texas and say that you were suspended illegally. See if they put you back on. One person actually has told me already they appealed and their suspension was immediately lifted. Now, that's not enough for me to form a conclusion about a potential policy change in Twitter As we read in the decision, the parties are still waiting on instructions from the court about how to proceed with that Texas law. But it's also possible that Twitter understands that this issue is headed to the Supreme Court where they're not going to get a decision that they want. And they might be getting ahead of that by letting people back onto the platform. So I want to know from people, if your account is banned, go appeal Mention the Texas decision and let me know on Truth Social or Telegram what the result of your appeal is. But it's funny, like I'll put up these requests on Truth and Telegram and people will tell me about their feelings about Twitter. I don't care that you don't like Twitter. I don't like Twitter. I've been talking about it for a very, very long time. I know that collectively we don't like Twitter. I know that Twitter banned us and that Twitter is an evil company. I know all these things. I say them constantly. So you don't need to say them back to me if I ask you whether or not you are able to get your account unsuspended. Hey, are you able to get your account unsuspended? I hate Twitter. Well, that doesn't make sense. That is an emotional reaction and it has nothing to do with the question being asked. Now, I love y'all and I'm not mad, But let's put our little personal Twitter traumas aside and figure out whether or not this is a major change in the censorship regime. There is almost nothing that could be bigger news than whether or not Twitter has stopped censoring the speech of American citizens. If I'm an isolated incident, fine, then it's not that, right? But I want the answer. I don't want it reaffirmed that we all don't like Twitter, because what else would it mean if Twitter has stopped censoring and banning people? Well, that would mean there is a possibility that Donald Trump's account might be reinstated. And if that happened, that would be immediate global news. These are the questions I want answered. I already understand that we don't like Twitter. Now, for the record, Donald Trump has said that he will never go back on Twitter because he likes Truth Social and Twitter is a cesspool. And that is a very principled thought to have. We'll see if the option comes up. And then at that point, whether he sticks with that claim, I don't know. But if Twitter unbans Trump, that would be news of worldwide importance. So let's switch subjects completely without a segue. This is from The Hill yesterday afternoon. Electoral Count Act reform waiting in wings as Congress ticks toward adjournment. As the 117th Congress inches toward a conclusion sometime in early December, the unfinished business continues to pile up. All pending bills and their sponsors cry out for action before the final gavel falls. The most obvious undone deed is funding the federal government for the fiscal year 2023, which begins on October 1st. That's 11 days from now. So far, the House has passed six of the 12 regular appropriations measures and the Senate none. While a continuing resolution is anticipated to tide things over until early December, even that tried and true fallback device is hung up on a sticking point from West Virginia. Senator Joe Manchin in return for his support for the deficit reduction climate change bill earlier this year. And by the way, that's the Inflation Reduction Act. It's not going to reduce inflation. It's not going to reduce the deficit. But the point is, it's going to save the earth from the sun. But let's start that paragraph again. Senator Joe Manchin, in return for his support for the deficit reduction climate change bill earlier this year, had been promised by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer a vote before the clock runs out on legislation to expedite the approval of energy infrastructure projects. The CR is his vehicle of choice as the only must pass measure in plain sight. Meanwhile, some 70 House members have signed a letter to Speaker Nancy Pelosi vowing to oppose the CR if the Mansion schumer deal is attached. Other rumbles of dissent have emanated from a handful of senators. Stay tuned. One piece of unfinished business that, so far, is not on a fast track but probably should be is the so-called Electoral Count Reform Act legislation to tighten up the cracks and loopholes in the antiquated 1887 electoral count law. Those flaws came to light after the chaotic and violent breach of the Capitol during the counting of electoral votes in the House chamber on January 6, 2021, and in inquiries into events leading up to it. While the tendency in Congress under the pressures of an adjournment deadline is to put off those things that are not considered urgently imperative— urgently imperative. Got it. After all, the 2024 presidential election is still two years off. That attitude is fraught with peril. Given the prospect that control of one or both chambers of Congress could well flip to Republicans in November's midterm elections, the climate for statutory tinkering with how the next presidential election is handled would likely not be as welcoming under a GOP majority. And there's the point right there. We can't allow decisions like this up to the voters. The voters might reject everything the Democrat Communist Party and their rhino enablers are trying to do. So they have to get it done before this Congress ends. They have to get it done while they're in the majority. This is a tip off to the fact that the Democrat Communist Party and Uniparty Republicans know that a major loss is headed their way. They can talk all they want about polling. They can talk all they want about Joe Biden's string of very important victories. They can talk about how the border really is secure and the economy is on the rebound. Oh, the fastest recovery ever. It had nothing to do with Donald Trump. They can pretend the inflation is going away. The inflation was all Vladimir Putin's fault and COVID's fault. And now it's the fault of a hurricane in Puerto Rico. They're really trying that. But they can go on and on and on with all the examples that they want. Oh, Democrats won a special election in New York and there was no election fraud ever. They just won that historically Republican district. And that shows that the Democrats are on the comeback trail. They can use as many examples as they like. They can call us domestic terrorists, extreme MAGA Republicans. Ooh, we're destroying democracy. Ooh, there's going to be another very violent insurrection. They can just keep going and going and going. But in their actions is the truth. And the truth is they know they're about to lose in historic fashion, which is why they need to get stuff done now, particularly stuff like the Electoral Count Act. They are trying to set things up so that they can win in 2024. They can't win a free and fair election, which is why they didn't even try to in 2020. Joe Biden campaigned from his basement. No one showed up at their rallies. He barely got interviewed. When he was interviewed, he was reading his answers from a teleprompter. He was taking Zoom interviews and reading his answers off the screens, and he still managed to do terribly. He bragged about how they had the biggest election fraud organization in history. And of course, he was trying to say that they had a big organization set up to fight election fraud, right? Fight election fraud. But no, he meant that Mark Elias had constructed his huge system of lawfare so that they could counteract and delay any court cases that might arise from the election fraud. They figured out how they were going to get these cases dismissed. They figured out how they could claim that their laws were constitutional and that the laws were followed and that, hey, if they weren't followed, it's too late now anyway. And that's exactly how they proceeded. They can't win a free and fair election because their policies destroy the country and everybody knows it now. In fact, most people knew it in 2020, which is why they had to come up with millions and millions of fraudulent votes in order to win. Republicans are virtually guaranteed to take back the House. And if that happens, none of this stuff is ever going to even make it to the floor. So they have to do it immediately, which means that they need to construct a narrative so that the country will believe that they have to do it immediately and get on their side. Now, that's not going to work, and the more they pursue this, the more people will realize that they're doing it for a reason, and that reason is that they can't win elections. One of the factors holding up action today on reforming the Electoral Count Act is competing views on how far such reforms should go. The Senate is approaching the task in a bipartisan manner with Senators Manchin and Susan Collins, Republican from Maine, leading the way, along with 16 co-sponsors after months of negotiations across the aisle. A House companion bill was introduced September 15th by moderate reps, Josh Gottenheimer, Democrat from New Jersey, and Fred Upton, Republican from Michigan. Well, Fred Upton's not going to be back. Fred Upton voted for the impeachment of Donald Trump, but according to The Hill, he's a moderate. In the House, a split is already developing between moderate and progressive Democrats, the latter wanting to use the occasion for expanding and facilitating citizen voting through amendments to the Voting Rights Act. So you get it? The progressives, the communists, the diehard out public communists want to take all the elections about the Electoral Count Act and expand them even further. They need even more votes because they, of course, are the ones most committed to global communism, which makes them most committed to the election fraud apparatus. This dispute will come to a head with the final report and recommendations of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The select committee has been specifically tasked with making recommendations to prevent the recurrence of another disruption of a presidential election. Representative Jamie Raskin, old Friar Cuck, a member of the select committee, opined on a recent Sunday talk show that the Senate approach is too narrowly focused on the role of the vice president in counting electoral votes and that a broader overall reform effort is needed. And that is a big chunk of the narrative right there. You can see what they're setting up. You can see how this is operating. They are going to use the recommendations of the wholly illegitimate January 6th committee as the narrative power behind this push to change how our elections are run and how they're certified. It would be presumptuous of them to set out their Policy priorities without first waiting for the January 6th committee to finish their very important work. Sure, their primetime hearings, their television show, was supposed to restart in its new season last Monday, September 12th, and it still hasn't restarted. Since their season finale last season, Liz Cheney lost her election by 40 points. And essentially, a third of her total vote was Democrats switching parties to vote for her and manipulate the outcome in Liz Cheney's favor. But Liz Cheney was absolutely and completely rejected, in large part for her work as a traitor to the United States of America in her prominent role in the January 6th committee and her general hatred for Donald Trump and virtually all republican voters at this point but they have to have a reason to mess around with elections or they can't win and that reason is the very violent insurrection that simply was not that characterization greatly misrepresents the Collins Mansion proposal which also contains provisions that a ensures Congress can identify a single conclusive slate of electors from each state. B, provides for expedited judicial review of certain claims relating to a state certificate identifying its electors. C, raises the threshold in Congress to lodge an objection to electors to at least one-fifth of the members of each chamber instead of a single member from each and D, strikes a provision from an archaic 1845 law that would enable state legislatures to override the popular vote in their state by declaring a failed election. Other tweaks may be necessary and possible without throwing the entire enterprise into its own year-end intraparty crack-up at Sessions' end. So let's look at these provisions, right? They want to ensure that Congress, the federal government, can identify a single conclusive slate of electors from each state. So the Congress, the U.S. House of Representatives, and the Senate, the federal government, gets to decide what slate of electors a state can send. They want expedited judicial review so that the courts could potentially knock down the slate of electors a state might send. They want to raise the threshold in Congress, and have one-fifth of the members agree to object, or else no objections in Congress will be heard. And they want to make it impossible for state legislatures to override the quote-unquote popular vote that is reported in their state. So basically, the election can run however they want it to, and no one has the power to object after the fact even if there is overwhelming and obvious proof of widespread systematic election fraud. So consider the situation in Michigan or Wisconsin or Georgia or Pennsylvania or Arizona. All of those states, widespread proven election fraud. In Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, courts determined that their 2020 elections were run in an unconstitutional and extra constitutional fashion. And the Pennsylvania decision is being appealed. It's still in that process. But there are actually courts that have decided that the elections were illegally run. They want to make that impossible. There are states that tried to send alternate slates of electors. You might remember in Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer barred the doors to the state house so that the alternate electors couldn't enter. And even as recently as a few weeks ago, mainstream media was saying that sending an alternate slate of electors means you participated in the insurrection and they're pursuing legal action against the alternate electors. They want to make it so that George Soros, secretaries of state who run the fraudulent election apparatus, can get their total vote results. No one can challenge them. The state has nothing to do with any of it. It gets sent to Congress. Congress decides all of this, and that's it. That's the end of the story. They make it so that Congress can stop objections. Congress can review the states of electors. Courts can review the slates of electors and states would no longer have the option of declaring a failed election. Now, all of this is unconstitutional. It says in the Constitution that the states determine the place and the manner of their own elections. The state legislatures, therefore, have plenary authority over their elections. And as we have seen Throughout the 19 months of this illegitimate regime's existence, they don't care about the Constitution. They care about setting everything up so that their power can never be threatened again. And let's close out this brilliant article. The old saw in Congress is the perfect is the enemy of the good. At this point, Broaching additional remedies not directly implicated in tabulating and certifying electoral votes may well be ideally desirable, even close to perfect. But they could introduce new complications that will require more deliberation and fine-tuning than time allows. With the House due to be out all of October for a quote-unquote district work period, a.k.a. midterm election campaigning, Time is of the essence for the sake of future election stability and security to act quickly, concisely and decisively doing good. So basically, they weren't able to pass H.R. 1, which would be a total federalization of elections. They would make California's election rules or Washington's or Michigan's all of the best of their experiment in stealing democracy all of those rules would become federal and applicable to all 50 states. Universal mail-in balloting sent out to everyone without request. Ballot harvesting is just fine. Machines go everywhere. Maybe they want to add on the California twist. You get to print your own ballot out at home on just normal computer paper, and that counts as a vote. And we all know that no one actually wants to commit election fraud. Therefore, no one would. And they'll say things like, we trust our citizens to respect the importance of our elections and only vote for themselves. And so then if you disagree with that, then you hate the citizens. That's how they always construct these things. And speaking of real world proofs that these people know they have no chance, they sent Joe Biden out to do an interview with 60 Minutes, thinking that he would be able to bring his message to a wide audience and reassure Americans of his competence and his capabilities. Sure, we're going through hard times, but Joe Biden, is the best man for the job still. He has his finger on the pulse of what the country really needs, despite the fact that he called 60% of us domestic terrorists two weeks ago. It's not their fault for being terrible and illegitimate. It's your fault for not understanding how great they are.
2: Your approval rating in the country is well below 50%. And I wonder why you think that is. This is a really
1: difficult time. We're at an inflection point in the history of this country. We're going to make decisions, and we're making decisions now, that are going to determine what we're going to look like the next 10 years from now. I think you'd agree that the impact on the psyche of the American people as a consequence of the pandemic is profound. Think of how that has changed everything. People's attitudes about themselves, their families, about the state of the nation, about the state of their communities. And so there's a lot of uncertainty out
0: there, a
1: great deal of uncertainty.
0: So Joe Biden's low approval ratings are a result of people's uncertainty about the future because we're at an inflection point. And the President of the United States is being forced to make decisions that might change how the country is in 10 years. It's a totally unusual situation. That's why the approval ratings are so low. But the people know that we have had an extraordinary string of wins. Just a few weeks ago, we picked up one special election win in a historically Republican district in New York where there is overwhelming election fraud. And sure, no one will attend my campaign events and no Democratic candidates will debate their opponents because they don't want to be exposed on a national stage. And yeah, we're trying to change all the ways that people vote and the way that we certify that those votes are valid, but that's to protect us from domestic terrorists. Don't you see? Mr. President, you are the oldest president ever.
2: Pretty good shape, huh? Which leads to my next question. You are more aware of this than anyone. Some people ask whether you are fit for the job. And when you hear that, I wonder what you think.
1: Watch me. Honest to God, that's all I think. Watch me. If you think I don't have the energy level or the mental acuity, then, then, you know, that's one thing. It's another thing of just watching and, you know, keep my schedule, do what I'm doing. I I think that, uh, you know, uh, I don't, when I sit down with our NATO allies and keep them together, I don't have them saying, wait a minute,
0: how old are you? What did you you say? Hey, Joe. People developed the belief that you are unfit for office physically and mentally by watching you. That's where that came from. That idea didn't bubble up from the dark recesses of the internet, the QAnon message boards. People came to that conclusion by watching you. You can't think in complete sentences, and that's obvious to everyone. You are not in control of your bowels, much less your thoughts. That's why you said, my butt's been wiped to reporters. You fell over on a bicycle while standing there. You spend virtually all of your time on vacation in Delaware. You said Hunter Biden was the smartest person you know. You have an instruction card that tells you where to move in the room and who to ask questions to, and you only receive questions that are pre-approved, and then you still find ways to answer them terribly. You sniff children and somehow can't stop. We get the impression that you're unfit for office because we're watching you. World leaders don't ask about your age because they already know that you're not the one making any of the decisions and they don't mock you because you're on their side. That's not something to brag about. Vladimir Putin doesn't even meet with you, you clown, and Xi Jinping has you completely compromised, and he treats you like his pet. You, you know, I mean, it's a matter of you know that old
1: expression: "The proof of the pudding's in the eating." I mean, I, I respect the fact that people would say, you know, you're old, and but I think it relates to how much energy you have and whether or not the job you're doing is one consistent
0: with what any person of any age would be able to do. So it's not Joe's age. That's the problem. Anyone of any age could be this bad at pretending to be president. Anybody could do that. So the attack is truly ageist.
2: How would you say your mental focus is? Well, it's focused.
0: <laughs> I
2: think it's I, think
1: it's, I, I haven't look. I have trouble even mentioning, even saying to myself, my own head, the number of years. I no more think of myself as being as old as I am than fly. I mean, it's just not, uh, uh, I haven't observed anything in terms of, there's not things I don't do now that I did before, whether it's physical or mental or anything else.
0: I no more think of myself as old as I am than fly, he said. In response to a question about how his focus was that he couldn't focus long enough to answer. And that is supposed to, I guess, reassure American voters that they elected competence and energy and a steady hand at the switch when they went in with maybe 45 or 50 million other Americans and voted for Joe Biden. And then, despite all evidence to the contrary, they listened to the television and believed that Joe Biden somehow got 81 million real legal American votes and is a legitimate president of the United States. There are maybe 50 million people in the country who really did fall for that. But now we're watching him and his focus just isn't there even when they're trying to advertise that his focus is there. It's everyone else's problem. They just are psychologically unable to be happy. Biden went on to announce that U.S. troops would be sent in to protect Taiwan if China invaded, just like Russia invaded Ukraine. It was an invasion and not just a piece of land, a people that wanted to rejoin Russia as they're about to vote on in a couple of days. No, it was an invasion. Putin was violating Ukraine's very sovereign borders. And then China's going to invade Taiwan and Joe Biden is going to send American troops. Except after the interview was aired, the fake administration scaled all that back and China proceeded with threatening Joe Biden. And the fake president also announced that the pandemic was over. And then the fake administration began scaling all of that back. And Fauci and all the little medical Nazis in the public eye, including his Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, started claiming that covid was still a very serious threat. We're still losing 400 people a day, and it's definitely not from the vaccine. It's from the very deadly pandemic that was real the whole time and always very, very deadly. And Corrine Jean-Pierre went to the White House press briefing room today to say that covid's not over. This is still a very serious emergency, which is why we're not going to give up our emergency powers. We still want to be able to mandate vaccines to federal workers and the military. We still want to get all that sweet, sweet covid money so that we can spread it around to states so that they will enforce the global communist agenda that we are laying out for them. Biden tried to threaten Putin off of using nuclear weapons in the war with Ukraine that Putin is essentially announcing is over mission complete. We are going to allow these republics to become part of Russia, and that'll be that. That's where we actually are, and the media is telling Americans and citizens of the West that Ukraine has launched a counteroffensive and retaken all of these lands that Russians had already moved out of, because they've got to keep the money going, always got to keep the money going. The fake president's fake administration sprang into action to argue that the things the fake president said on national television simply aren't true. They want the thing and its opposite all the time so that no one actually knows what's true. Is Biden going to send troops to Taiwan? Well, according to Biden in his 60 Minutes interview, yes. According to reality, he doesn't have that option. According to the fake administration, the answer's no. So what is any child brain supposed to assume? Well, they just don't know. And if they don't know, if they can't figure it out, if something has cognitive dissonance, if they can't get to the bottom of it and take a firm position on either side, well, then they argue that it actually doesn't matter. And you're only trying to gain political advantage by claiming that it does. I mean, sure, it's a war or maybe two wars. Or a pandemic, but you're just trying to score cheap political points by pointing out that the fake president and his fake administration actually have no idea what the answers to these questions actually are. And then finally, let's get to the real money shot here. And for a money shot, you have to get a bag man who doubles as a porn star. And of course, I'm talking about Hunter Biden.
2: A difficult life for the president. In 1972, he lost his wife and daughter in a car accident. He lost his son Beau to cancer in 2015 at the age of 46. And his son Hunter has been a lightning rod for suspicion. Hunter Biden's former addiction to crack cocaine led to a life he describes as nonstop depravity. He has also acknowledged a federal investigation into his taxes. Congress investigated Hunter Biden's job with a Ukrainian company at the time that his father ran Ukrainian policy in the Obama administration. A Republican investigation, however, uncovered no wrongdoing by then Vice President Biden. Mr. President, if you run again, Republicans are most likely to go after your son Hunter once again. And I wonder what you would like to say about your son and whether any of his troubles have caused conflicts for you or for the United States.
1: I love my son, number one. He fought an addiction problem. He overcame it. He wrote about it. And no, there's not a single thing that I've observed at all for me, that would affect me or the United States relative to my son, Hunter.
0: Not a single problem whatsoever. The problem is a personal one for Hunter. It's just about his addiction and he's handled it. He's definitely not doing anything like that anymore. In fact, he wrote about it. And by wrote about it, it means that he put his name on a book that a man named Drew Jubera wrote for him. That no one read and sure, Joe Biden is sending tens of billions of dollars to the most corrupt nation on earth in Ukraine, where Joe Biden and his son Hunter had business ventures going on, active ones, including ones related to biomedical research in Ukrainian biolabs, handling deadly and dangerous pathogens that were being manipulated to target people of Slavic ethnicities. But that's got nothing to do with world affairs. That doesn't affect the United States of America. Sure, we're just supporting them because the Ukrainian people are so brave and the comedic actor needs us so much. And we are just trying to uh, protect the uh, Western world and, you know, the, the... what is it called? The uh, the liberal world order. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do. And that is also what we're trying to do when I threaten to put troops on the ground in Taiwan if the Chinese invade, even though I'm also draining the strategic petroleum reserve and sending millions of barrels of our best and most important oil to China. But none of that's got anything to do with my son Hunter and the business deals he made that I was also profiting off of, you know, I mean, fine. All of that is conclusively proven with the laptop and with testimony from Tony Bobolinsky and a long historical record of my own corruption. But you guys, you can't think that that stuff matters. I mean, what are you like, psychologically unable to be happy Let's focus on how much my economy is expanding. Don't you understand my series of wins? We're just trying to make the country as perfect as we can, which is why we need to switch over the entire election apparatus into our control. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. Don't you see? Watch me. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as fifty dollars a year or five dollars a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range.